0: Good morning. We'd like to welcome you here on this Palm Sunday. Please stand and join us in the call to worship, which will be seen on the screens in front of you. As the time came for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem.
1: cut up branches from the trees and spread them on the road.
0: When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the
1: King who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You are. Oh, so- to die.
2: God, we thank you that you, through Christ, have overcome, and we've come today to worship you because you are the great God who overcomes all things. Let our worship honor you and please you. Be glorified in, in the songs we sing, in the prayers we pray, and the words we say, and we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Just a couple of things that uh, I want to mention to you uh, coming up this week. This is uh, Palm Sunday, as you know, the beginning of Holy Week. And uh, just notice on the back of the bulletin, the list of activities, and they're described in a little more detail in the bulletin. Uh, no Wednesday evening activities this week. Thursday, uh, Monday, Thursday service is 7 o'clock. And this is a, a great time of preparing ourselves for those last few uh, days, hours in the life of Christ. And the service has a lot of uh, sensory elements to it. And so we, uh, we invite you to join us Wednesday, Thursday evening, 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Friday, uh, we will uh, be doing again what we did last year, a Journey to the Cross event in the community room beginning at 10 in the morning, and it will go till 6, and you can come and go during that time. Uh, different destinations will be set up around the gym for you just to experience uh, the, the um, passion, the the last hours, uh, the cross in the life of Christ. And so we want to invite you to be a part of that gathering and again feel free to come and go anytime during those hours from 10 to 6. And the next Sunday is Easter Sunday and uh, we have a service at 745. We'll have uh, a couple of people who are being baptized in that service. A Breakfast will follow that uh, up at the college and then at 10 o'clock we'll have our resurrection worship service here back in the sanctuary. Uh, we, we're praying that God will, will speak to, into our lives during this very special week in the life of Christ and in the life of his people.
0: The scripture reading for this morning is John 19, verses 38 through 42. Later, As the ushers come forward to assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings, children ages 2 through 5 are dismissed for Children's Church, which meets on the first floor of the Christian Education Building. Holy
1: Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended Alas oh, my trees up. Jesus, since I cannot pay Thee, I do adore Thee, and will
2: Contemplating what God has done for us in Christ, we are here as call to come before him with our prayers, our burdens, our concerns, and our words of gratitude. In this time of prayer, if you would like to use the altar as the place where you come and offer your prayers, please join me. God, we come before you today with a a mixture of feelings and a need for confession. We hear of the sufferings of Jesus and yet resist hardship for ourselves. We set high expectations for others and then resist them for ourselves. We clamor for attention to our needs and are often unfeeling about the needs of others. We're lenient with our own faults and severe with the faults of others. We are so often quick to speak and slow to listen. We have a tendency to judge on outward appearances before we discover the character that you have put within other people. Father, we ask you to be patient with us and continue to assist us in crafting our souls and our values, who we are. Forgive us for our foolish and selfish ways and be patient with us when we falter. Above all, make us continually aware of your grace extended to us. Make us aware that we cannot pray and acknowledge your presence without bringing with us And bringing to you all of your children in this world. We pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world. We pray, Father, that that you will pour out your spirit on each of them. And as we move into this very special week in the life of your church... We pray that your people around the world will know the power of Christ in a very new way, in a deeper way, in a way that makes us more like Christ. Father, we pray for the burdens and the needs right among us as well. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all who are in need of healing and comfort, restoration. Every burden and concern that we feel and sense today. And in these moments of silence, we pour out our burdens to you, knowing that you hear us. Father, thank you for your work in every situation. Thank you for what you are doing and the people for whom we pray. We ask that you will continue to bind us together as your people in this place. That we would be so filled with you we continually share you with our words, our actions, our lives. And we pray this through Christ, who teaches us the model for prayer that we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, we give you the highest praise. And we ask that you would continue to speak into our lives through your word. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. think people view us as a church? How should they view us as a church? And maybe the bigger question is, how is the church viewed by the world? How are we viewed by each other? What kind of, how do we influence the world for Christ? Christ. All of those questions, I think, are wrapped up together because people are, are open to Christ based on whether they feel like they're open to us and we're open to them. And, and there, there are all of these kinds of dynamics of what the church should look like and how the church should influence the world and, and even how we influence each other. And, and there are all kinds of opinions about that. Now I was thinking about that very question as I was reading once again the this last section of the about the burial of Christ, Jesus is dead, and the Romans tended to leave people on the crosses as just one more sign a deterrent for people for criminals who might be thinking about doing something, particularly against the state, and and so the the bodies are there and and this. Joseph of Arimathea, who is a part of the, the ruling body of the Jews, a part of the, the Sanhedrin, comes and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Now, we know just a little bit about Joseph. He, he, he seems to be a person of some wealth. He, he certainly seems to be a person of some influence. The fact that he could go to Pilate and Pilate would actually listen to him. He, he seems to be a person who, who is a seeker after God. John tells us that he is a disciple of Jesus. And, and he comes and he, and he asks for Jesus' body and he takes it down and he puts it in the tomb. And, and he, he treats Jesus with respect and buries him. But what intrigued me about this description that John gives us here is that he says, Joseph is a disciple of Jesus... ...but in secret. And the reason he is a secret disciple of Jesus... ...is because he is afraid of the Jews. Now that seems to be a theme that runs through John's gospel. That the general sense is fear about the Jews. Now when you use the term the Jews... ...when John uses that term and typically in the gospels... ...he doesn't mean the Jewish people as a whole... He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, the people, the high priests, the the chief priests, the scribes, the the Levites, the Pharisees, the people who rule, who are are the religious leaders of that day. That's who people fear. In in John chapter 7, Jesus is is teaching the people and, and people are amazed at his teaching and, and he says, says, John says in verse 13, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. And some said, he's a good man. Others replied, now he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When you get to chapter 9 of John's gospel, it's the story of a man who's born blind and Jesus heals him. And he heals him on the Sabbath, and so that creates a whole problem for the Jewish leaders. And, and so they're interrogating the guy, and they aren't getting the answers they want, so they bring in his parents, and they begin interrogating them. And, and they say, look, you go ask him. He's old enough. And John says, the reason they said this is because they were afraid of the Jews. And you come to chapter 12 of John's Gospel. This is after Palm Sunday, during that last week of Jesus' life, and and he is teaching and healing. And and again, there are people who have mixed feelings about him and even says some of the religious leaders are are beginning to, to believe that he is the one he says he is. But John says nobody's willing to say a word about Jesus because they're afraid of the Jews. And there is this aura of fear around the institutional religion of that day. There is an aura that, that of the Jewish, the Jewish leaders that we are going to convince you to follow our way through intimidation and fear. You're going to do what we want you to do. You're going to think the way we want you to think. You're going to understand God the way we want you to understand God by intimidation and fear. And that is the aura. That's how the, the religious institution of first century Palestine is viewed. Now now there is a difference between fearing the religious leaders and fearing God. The scriptures tell us that we ought to fear God. You go back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 18. Uh, Moses is choosing people to help him lead the people of Israel. And and God says that he chose people who feared the Lord. They worshiped God. They stood in awe of God. God was important to them. Move into the book of Leviticus. And over and over again, the, the book of Leviticus tells us that God says to the people, if you fear me, You know how I will know that you fear me is how you treat people who are vulnerable and weak. The poor, orphans, widows. And the people who fear me care for them. Watch over them. Treat them with kindness. They care about injustice and they do something about it. And the people who don't fear me don't care about injustice. In fact, they create injustice. In Deuteronomy 31... As Moses is just about to end his leadership in Israel and he's giving them the final instructions, he says, fear the Lord your God and it will go well with you. And throughout the Psalms, we have many instances where the psalmist says, fear God. In chapter 33, verse 18, he he says, the the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him who hope in the Lord who loves them. There is this sense of fear, but it's different. It's it's not anxiety producing. It's not threatening. It is worship. It's recognition of who God is. It's acknowledging God's greatness. It is putting God first as opposed to ignoring God, rejecting God. And to fear God is a good thing. It leads to blessing but we don't th- I don't think we see God calling his people and his, his church to create an aura of fear. But it's so easy for us to want to do that because that's, sort of how, that's how things get done in our world. That's how, that, when you have power and you, gain, you get power and you keep power, more often than not through intimidation. You think about just the political season that we've come through. And and you think about the different ads that you saw. It doesn't matter who the candidate was because it's pretty much across the board. The majority of the ads that I saw were not about... A candidate wouldn't stand up and say, this is what I'm for. As much as, if you vote for my opponent, your life is as you know it is going to end. If you vote for my opponent... Everything you fear is going to come true. And there's this atmosphere, it created this, this aura of fear and intimidation and worry and anxiety. And, and often we're motivated by that. And it's how you, you get power, and it's often how you sustain power by fear. And, and our politicians have a tendency to create that atmosphere. And, and sometimes that happens in the church as well. Is that we just translate that same strategy into the kingdom, just like the religious, religious leaders do in the first century Palestine. And one of the reasons we do that is because it looks to us as though it works. I mean, when you can intimidate people, they'll do what you want. And, and we do it for the best reasons often. It starts off for good reasons. This is truth. This is what we believe is right. And we want people to understand that. And so we will force people, we will intimidate people to do what is right. But it usually isn't a real good long-term motivation. But we do it. And through the centuries of the church, people have done it. I was reading not so long ago about one of the reformers. Uh, back in the 16th century that was a, a great leader, a great pastor, a great leader of the church and a leader in the town where they were serving. And of course, it was, you know, they were in this, this uh, struggle with uh, the whole reformation and, and separating from the Catholic church and all of the things that were going on at that time. But this person had, as, a, as the leader of the church in that community, had gained a, a considerable amount of power. And, and because they were trying to to communicate that and trying to turn people to their way of thinking, they they organized, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of a secret police all around the town of people, informants, spies, and and people would come to them, and and people were fined and punished for things that this leader felt were wrong, and so things like drinking and and dancing and and. Saying that there was no devil or no hell or, or saying that the Pope was a good man. You could be fined and punished for all of that. Also, people also were fined and punished for criticizing this person's sermons. I didn't know you could do that. Now that one we may want to think about a little bit more. There's some value to that. But it, And it created this atmosphere of fear among the people that, that if, you, if you don't think the way I think, if you don't follow things the way I designed them, then there will be serious consequences. But I am convinced, because of what I see in the Scriptures and how I see God operating in, in the world and in the Scriptures, that love, not fear, it is a more genuine path to transformation. When I when I read the scriptures, I, I see God. Not I don't see God bullying anyone into the kingdom. I see God being serious about the things that are right and wrong. And I see, God, I see God telling us about the consequences of following or not following him. But I don't see God bullying anybody into the kingdom. I see God wooing us. I see God loving us. I see God chasing after us. I see God trying to draw us. But I don't see God bullying anyone into the kingdom. John tells us in that most, probably one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, that God so loved the world that he sent his son. It is love that motivates God to send Christ. And, I, and, and God's, God is continually wooing us and drawing us, and I'm convinced that. That despite what we think and despite what we see all around us and despite what looks like it works, the strategy to genuine transformation is not fear and intimidation, it's love. And the question then is, how do we we create an atmosphere of love? How do we create that kind of atmosphere of, of, of love as God's people? And I think one of the things that, that we do is that we, we acknowledge individually and corporately that we're sinners that need God's continual grace. Nothing, nothing removes our arrogance. Nothing removes our, our, our desire to intimidate people more than acknowledging our own needs. And acknowledging that we are where we are, any good in us at all is only because of God's grace. And, and moving forward in righteousness, moving deeper in holiness is not becoming independent of God's grace. It is more and more recognizing our need for God's grace and depending on God's grace and relying on God's grace. When you look at at the people that you admire as as godly, holy people, whether they're people that you read about in history or people you know in your life, and you you think those people are kind of a Christ-like people, I guarantee you they are people who are more and more dependent on God's grace and acknowledge God's grace and the need for God's grace in their lives, not the opposite. And you and I need to continually recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace every moment, every day. I think we also commit ourselves to each other. And that means that, that we, we live with a spirit of give and take and learning from each other. And, and you know there are this core central truths that, that we believe as followers of Christ. And those things are, are rock solid and we don't give on those things. But there are lots of peripheral things that we may disagree about. And that's okay. And the attitude, the spirit that I think God is looking for from us is not, how can I convince that person to think the way I think, but rather, what can I learn from other people? What can I learn from the mindset that other people have, from things that God has revealed to them that he may want to say into my life that I haven't yet realized? Because there are always things that we need to learn. None of us have arrived in our understanding of God and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And the most profound means outside of the scriptures that God gives us for learning what it means to be a follower of Christ is the church. Each other. With all of our failings and all of our struggles and all of our differences of opinion, it's the church. And God has brought us together together And we're not all the same. Thank goodness. We're different. And we see things differently. And God uses that to teach us and to help us grow deeper and deeper in him as we commit to each other. And ultimately, creating this atmosphere of love is rooted in the risk of the cross. I don't think we realize sometimes what a radical counter-everything God's strategy is for saving the world. How revolutionary the cross is. It goes against the grain of everything that we as human beings think is the way to get to the end that we want. Because we're all about grasping, getting, accumulating and the cross is about letting go. It's about loving. It's about sacrificing. It's about risking. And can you think of any more risky venture than the cross? I mean, God, when you you look at the cross, do you think the people who put Jesus on the cross are sitting there looking up at him thinking, feeling intimidated by him? No, of course not. That's why they taunt him. And that's why they berate him and abuse him. Because they believe they have won. And in that moment, it certainly looks like they win and Jesus loses. But we know different. Because in that moment, the looks so deceiving. And for you and me and as the church... What looks like winning sometimes to us isn't. And what looks, feels, looks and feels like losing to us isn't. And if God's strategy for winning the world and, and bringing his influence to bear on the world is the risk of the cross, how can ours be any different? We risk love because God risks love. That's what it keeps coming back to. He keeps coming back to the cross. What God has done in Christ. In this radical, revolutionary strategy for changing the world. And that brings us to this table. Because at this table, simple things like bread and the cup are transformed into symbols and images of the ultimate risk of God's love for us. And when we take the bread and drink the cup, we are saying the strategy that God uses is the strategy that I want to use, that we want to use. As we, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are declaring that God is right. That God's revolutionary, radical strategy is the only one that truly has a chance for changing the world. And is the only one that does change the world. It's the only one that can truly do what needs to be done. And you and I are embracing that strategy of God. It is the way of trust. And coming to this table, we are declaring that we trust God. We trust what God has done and what God is doing and what God is going to do. And that we desire God to make us the same kind of people people who influence the world the way he does. People through whom the Holy Spirit can do something significant in the world the way he does. Not fear, not intimidation, but love and grace through the spirit of the crucified Christ. Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is indeed a a radical strategy for our human minds. Our tendency is to take, not to give. Our tendency is to grasp, not to let go. Our tendency is to be safe, not to risk. We come before you today as a body of believers and ask your forgiveness and ask for your grace. Upon us, that we might together embrace your strategy for changing the world. Father, we pray your abundant blessing upon the bread and the cup which we are partake, partaking this morning. We pray that it will be food for our souls. pray that as we eat and drink, that we will know the power of Christ in us as individuals and as a body, that we might be renewed and restored and filled with the Spirit of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and then he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction, means to dip in. And as you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. and Return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar rail is always open if you'd like to stay and pray. And I'd like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. If you come today with your heart open to Christ, with the desire to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, and to live in fellowship with Him and with one another, then you are wholeheartedly invited to come and to receive these gifts from our gracious and loving Heavenly Father.
0: love is
1: this, oh my soul, what wondrous love is this, Oh my soul, what wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, to bear the dreadful What wondrous love is this Oh For sin, placed on him the hope of every man. Oh, the blood of Jesus washes me.